Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, Luann Thomas Ewald, the Chief Operating Officer of C.S. Mott Children's Hospital and the Von Voigtlander Women's Hospital. On this edition of Women Who Lead, you'll get the latest information on COVID and kids, and you'll also meet two women doing incredible work in our community. An interesting and informative show coming up next. Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald. And Luann, our first guest on today's show is Dr. LaDonna Joy Hendricks-Sparrow, a pediatrician at U of M Health C.S. Mott Children's Hospital. And Dr. Hendricks-Sparrow works at Michigan Medicine's Brighton Center. Doctor, welcome to the show. Thank you. And today, Lou, we are going to talk to Dr. Hendricks-Sparrow about COVID and kids and what you are both seeing at Michigan Medicine. So Lou, I'm gonna let you get started first with this. Thank you, Ann. We, you know, we had at Michigan Medicine and CS Mott, we actually had a press conference this month month to really encourage parents um, to vaccinate their children. And Dr. Hendrick Sparrow, I know you're seeing a lot of these kids um, at our Brighton location. And if you could talk to us, you know, the, the difference from this year to last year with COVID is last year with COVID, we weren't really seeing children being affected. And now um, the, the numbers are continuing to increase. So can you talk to us about what you're seeing in the clinic? Sure. Um, I, I agree. I think um, there's definitely been a shift in terms of what COVID is doing in the pediatric population. Um, in the beginning of COVID, you know, we were all there swabbing noses and most times they were not positive. I found that initially um, in our teenage populations, we were getting some positive tests. But with our school age and our toddlers and infants, I was not seeing positive tests but I would say probably beginning around summer of last year and certainly even more so now, most of um, the vast majority of the kids I'm swabbing are actually positive for something. Um, so quite a bit, most of it is COVID. Um, we've seen some flu and it seems like RSV maybe has slowed down some, but <clears throat> I think in the summer when we had like the spike in COVID with the kids, it was along with RSV. Um, and some of those kids are just quite quite ill and usually the younger kids, um, infants and toddlers. So, you know, I watch um, what's happening across the country. And so the reports that have been coming out are things like it's COVID in, in kids, it's COVID and it's croup, it's COVID. And so like it's COVID and that's triggering other things or other things are triggering. Lots um, of COVID. croup, kind of weird, like croup and kids who are too old to have croup. Um, like just... A lot, yeah, definitely a lot more croup than I normally see, um, and and then sometimes along with COVID. So, what what is your advice to families um, and you know the community about what we can do to protect our kids? So, I usually try to have a conversation with families about layers of protection. So, in the beginning. 
we didn't have as many layers. So we were washing our hands and we were trying to keep some distance. Um, people didn't quite understand the concepts of masks at first. And so we didn't have as many layers and cases were spiking. But now, you know, we have, we know which masks work the best. We know that the vaccine helps us to not get as sick. Um, so I just try to encourage them where it's available because of course, some of my patients are not able to get vaccinated. I do encourage them like, Hold it, hold on and, and keep up the good fight. So keep washing your hands and keep minimizing exposures. If you don't feel well, don't go out. Um, get vaccinated if you can. If you're eligible for booster, get booster. Do all the things to put as many layers between your family and this um, disease. Do we have any... Um any information on the timing to get our littlest kids vaccinated? We know that zero to five mm -hmm. age range is very vulnerable. Um, and that's what we're seeing in the hospital as well. Sure. An increase in that age range because they cannot get vaccinated. Is there anything nationally coming out on what that timing could be? So initially, I think it was supposed to have been summer, but then some of the studies showed that the um, response wasn't as high as they would like it to be. So like dosing has to be revamped. And I think the projection now is end of 22. But as you know, like with the 5 to 11s, we came out like a quarter earlier than we had anticipated. So hopefully something like that will happen with the, the under fives as well. I have a couple under fives at my home that I would love to get vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, that's what I've been seeing online as well. Um, and it's, you know, it's wonderful to see, you know, pediatricians really stepping up saying, I vaccinated my kids, here's why. Um, you know, to really help to create that trust sure. um, and, and that vaccination rate. I think for some of us, though, if we've if we've been in pediatrics for at least like 15 years, you've seen the benefit of vaccines like firsthand. So I have one who is vaccinated. She's old enough. And then the other two are too young. But I remember when um, chickenpox vaccine became like standard and how that changed things. I remember being at Children's Hospital when um, in the winters, the floor would be full with kids with rotavirus who were so sick with vomiting and diarrhea, they needed IV fluids. And then rotavirus vaccine came out. And within a couple seasons, we had something else. It was not those kids. And they used to fill up the floor. So, I mean, I think over the years, we've all seen, um, you know, if we're paying attention, we've all seen the benefit of these vaccines. And sometimes it can be a little bit scary trying something new. You're not sure um, if it's going to create some other problem. But we do know the problems that COVID is creating. And I think at some point we have to be brave and we have to do what we think is right. And I would prefer to vaccinate my kid and have tried to do the right thing than to sit and let something happen that I could have potentially um, prevented. So that's kind of the conversation I try to have with parents. I don't know if you know, in terms of like demographics of the different um, uh, sites, 
Brighton location is a little bit more challenging than most with um, vaccines. Um, so this is a conversation that um, I guess it's kind of good. Our Brighton doctors are very used to having. <laughs> so what do you say to parents who come in who are worried about side effects from the vaccine, doctor? So most often what I'm asked about is about myocarditis because there's been some press about that. And um, the fact is that COVID infection is much more likely to cause myocarditis than the vaccine. And I may not have the numbers correct, but I believe it was like six times more likely with natural infection. And then, of course, there's a certain demographic, which is teenage boys who should have already been vaccinated by now. So those are not usually the ones, you know, now the, it's the five-year-olds where they're asking this question. And these are not the ones who are at risk for myocarditis anyway. And then I always warn them about, you know, the usual things with vaccines. They can have short-term things. They can be tired or have fever or rash or, you know, sight reaction like the site is, is red or swollen or tender. And we talk about things to do at home should those things happen so that they're not panicking and, and coming in for those, those uh, concerns. The other thing that we're hearing about are that some children end up having the long hauler symptoms, long hauler problems. Can you talk to our audience about what that is and what you are seeing and Lou, what you're seeing? So initially we were seeing long hauler in adults. Um, so that's where they were having long-term fatigue, sometimes respiratory compromise. Um, it was not something we were seeing in children, probably because we weren't seeing much COVID in children. And so certainly now as we're seeing more COVID cases in children, there is that potential for long haulers. I don't think I've really seen, I think I have a couple kids who seem to have like a long-term fatigue syndrome sort of thing going on. Um, but for the most part, my my patients have recovered well from their COVID infections. And Lou, what about you in the hospital? What are you seeing yeah. with regard to this issue? Yeah, so um, this summer we opened a long haulers clinic for adolescents. And so um, exactly what Dr. Hendrick Sparrow stated, it's a lot of fatigue um, headache um, that, you know, those symptoms just really aren't going away. So, you know, we established the clinic. This, this is new to us as well. So we're, you know, watching these kids, monitoring these kids, helping these kids. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, we, we can keep these, these symptoms to, to a minimum. But again, this is, you know, this is 12 months in the making. And so we're, we're trying to address the the community need is as best as we can as we hear of these issues coming up. And doctor, as a parent and a pediatrician, how do you feel about sending children to school? And if they should be in school or are in school, what are some precautions that you want everyone to take, both the, the teachers and the students and the parents? Yeah, I mean, I think we're definitely in a a very um, difficult situation with school because all those things that we need to do, all those layers of protection are a little bit challenging for little kids. Um, but I think, you know, that's the purpose of the layers, right? So I think if we have as many layers as possible in place, it is possible to have children in school, but districts have to be responsible about 
um, having them in school. So, and it's so, so much variability between districts in terms of what they're doing. So some are trying to have smaller classrooms and distancing and they're masking and they're doing all the things and some are not doing anything at all. And so certainly those are the ones it's, it's very clear. Those are the ones where we're having more cases and classrooms are shutting down and they're having to do virtual kind of like on the fly and not as part of like a planned, um, curriculum. And it definitely is not great for the children. I think that there's some benefit to um, to virtual school when it is thought about and planned. But for those kids who, you know, are all of a sudden, I heard one kid recently um, that I saw in clinic last week, his school is closed starting today for the month because they have so many cases and he doesn't want to be on virtual school. And he told me he plans to just cheat and look up all the answers. He's, he's just not interested. Mm. So, I mean, I think if, if you have parents who can be involved with them while they're home, it's helpful, but people haven't planned for that. So you may have to work, you may have to just find a sitter to kind of sit with them, but that person is not necessarily a teacher. So it definitely creates some challenges for kids as far as learning, but I think we can do it if we do all the things that we can do. And finally, before we let you go, we are hearing a lot of confusing stories about testing. Are you a fan of testing children? Uh, certainly, if they have symptoms, I would prefer that they're tested than not so we know what to do. We could just err on the side of caution and quarantine for 10 days, um, but then we still don't know about exposure. So that particular child could quarantine for 10 days, but we don't know if they if they don't test, we don't know as far as like prior exposures, like do we need to notify classmates or family members, and then the spread continues. So we definitely, um, at Michigan Medicine, we have, um, you have to meet uh, criteria in order to do testing, but if you meet criteria, then certainly um, testing is is a great, uh, a great tool so that we know kind of how to proceed. Dr. LaDonna Joy Hendricks-Sparrow, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Hendrick Sparrow is a pediatrician at U of M Health CS Mott Children's Hospital, and she works at Michigan Medicine's Brighton Center. Women Who Lead will continue in just a few minutes. Listening to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co host, Luann Thomas Ewald. And Luann, we continue the conversation now by welcoming one of our 2022 Women Who Lead honorees, Jennifer Mefford. She is the director of the MTD Consulting Group. Jennifer, welcome to the show and congratulations. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here with you this morning, and I'm so honored to be nominated. Thank you. So, Jennifer, this is a well-deserved honor. You have been working with the radio station for many, many years, most notably with IBEW and NECA. So tell us what is MTD Consulting Group? Sure. So uh, about 12 years ago, I um, came out of broadcasting, where I was for a couple of decades in management, and I decided to really focus on working exclusively with clients in the construction industry specifically the union construction industry. Those were relationships that had formed during my career in broadcasting. And I really felt that I could add uh, a voice and a storytelling aspect to what they do and connectivity that would really help them grow their business. 
So uh, I started out with the electrical field and working with both labor and management, um, talking to everything from customers to developers to owner community, and then really expanded my business um, to include a lot of workforce development. With that expansion also came a lot more client relationships, including many of the other uh, union trade associations, uh, trades union uh, groups, and then some coalitions that are kind of unique to this market, um, including Must Careers, which is management and union serving together, uh, and the Michigan Building and Construction Trades Council. So all of my work right now, one way or the other, is with construction clients. And Lou, I know you've got some questions for Jen too. I do. You just you just mentioned um, a component about workforce development. How how have you been able to accomplish that in the current environment that we're we're in? So about six or seven years ago, the industry really started looking ahead at a couple of things that we knew were coming down the pipeline, and one of that was a lot of uh, baby boomer retirement. So, you know, within um, kind of this seven to 10 year track, we're looking at somewhere between 35 and 45 percent of our current workforce in the union trades, as well as on the contractor side, um, looking at retirement. So that combined with uh, some uh, lower levels of intake during those recession years in the 08, 09, uh, 2010 um, era, really led us to look at how are we looking at recruitment? What do we need to adequately staff our industry, not just for today, but really for the next decade? So by working together, um, one of the pinch points that we identified was this dialogue that wasn't happening in the schools. So within um, educators, counselor community, and even with parents about the viability of construction trades careers and the viability of skilled trades careers. Um, I will say there, there's just as much opportunity to have an amazing career in construction on the contractor side, the entrepreneurial side of the industry, as well as skilled trades. So I think it's nothing but opportunity, but we really set about very strategically um, to start reaching out to counselors and engaging. So some of this, you know, in the very beginning was meeting with school boards and administrators and having that conversation that was outside of college for everyone. So we have seen great success when we bring um, anyone into our training centers and let them actually experience skilled trades hands-on. So as an industry, we created what we now call seven years later, uh, the must uh, roadshow, which is a, a professional day for counselors where they come into different training centers. They go to electrical sheet metal, uh, they could do bricklaying, they could do carpentry. Um, it varies by the program that we're running, but we bring them in for a you know casual day, roll up your sleeves and start doing some of these core skills uh, for those trades. The reaction that we have with most of our participants who have never bent conduit for electrical or uh, you know done any kind of welding or anything like that, any kind of facilitated um, hands-on, um, is that they're really starting to understand the skill level at which the trades function and also this, the um, academic skill sets that are needed to be successful. Math plays a huge role in the skilled trades. So and for many, I think it's, it's oftentimes um, something that um, probably doesn't resonate right away that, wow, we need college-level math to be successful in the skilled trades. But oftentimes we really do. Reading comprehension, applied reading uh, to problem solving makes makes a huge difference. But in many of our trades, math will be used every day. 
So those are the types of things that we start to reinforce. And, and from that came connectivity and outreach and working with school districts. And now, of course, the roadshow is seven years later, and we have hundreds of participants every year. And we have, of course, resource toolkits and things that we put into schools as well. So we're really uh, approaching workforce development holistically. But any time that we can engage a parent, a student, or an administrator <clears throat> into uh, into doing hands-on and experiencing something on a job site, it makes a huge difference. I, I love that you are this powerful woman leading this group and also, you know, involved in the construction business across multiple levels. And, you know, you, you, you serve as a role model for these girls in school. So can you talk about what opportunities you see in the future for women in, in construction? Yeah, I, you know, for my opinion, I feel like there's nothing but opportunity in construction, no matter what side of the, of the house you go into it, whether you're working for a, a contractor, perhaps running work or project management, estimating, or you're going into the skilled trade side. Um, the industry as a whole has about 5% female uh, workforce. So these are not significant numbers, right? Um, it's a heavily male-dominated industry, but I, I feel that the skill set that women bring, their communication skills, uh, on a job site, uh, on the trade side, you may have you know 10 to 14 trades there at a time. There could be thousands of workers there. Communication skills are really key in every aspect of what so many of us do, but certainly really critical on a job site. Um, organizational skills. I think the finesse that women bring um, to all of these things make a huge difference. Um, you know, I have met uh, some amazing um, young women, but also some amazing women who were working in other fields that just were either not on a career track or pathway um, or just not fulfilled in what they were doing, who love to work with their hands. And once they figure out they're makers, right, they love to make things, they love to do things, and they love to create. I think those are all naturally um, great qualities that women have that could be applied to the construction trades. Um, the construction industry is also growing um, really exponentially right now. Um, combined with that, you know, we talked a little bit about how many of our older workers are going to be retiring. Um, I think there's, for me, uh, you know, whatever you do, do it with passion and, and whatever your education is, make sure there's a jobs market on the other side of it. Uh, in construction, uh, there is nothing but opportunity. Um, the market is growing rapidly, and there's great opportunity for women to make an entire great career uh, all the way up to ownership in construction. And Jennifer, it's a lucrative field. It is. You know, it's. Uh, I think it's, again, something that um, maybe isn't talked about as much. It is more today, you know, more so than it was, you know, even seven, eight years ago. Uh, but these are six-figure careers for the skilled trades here in Michigan. And, and our contractors are very, very successful. You know, this is, um, this is a, an opportunity to grow and have a large, lucrative career with great wages and benefits. An opportunity, I think, to pivot as the industry changes because so much of our construction um, industry is really based on education and continuing education. So that support will be there as you wanna pivot and change and grow within your career within the construction industry. Um, it's kind of built in, right? Yeah. So uh, I love that aspect of it because you could have, um, you could start in the trades, go through an apprenticeship, start in the trades, work in the field, go into supervision, then uh, finish some education, go into working for a contractor, run work, and become an owner if you want to. Really, whatever you want to, the sky's the limit. 
And you're also the national co-chair of the Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Training Program. Tell us a little bit about that and what that involves, Jennifer Meffer. Yes, I was very excited when uh, General Motors was getting ready to launch the Chevy Volt in 2010 and 2011 to start working with a coalition of industry stakeholders that included GM, other automakers, utility companies, and charging manufacturers um, to really look kind of holistically again at what does the EV market need to support expansion uh, from a charging perspective. So what what do consumers need? What do they need to feel really confident about uh, when they're buying an EV in terms of how are they going to charge that vehicle? What does access look like? What does the installation process look like? And how is it going to be safe? So we got together and developed a curriculum. Uh, Charging infrastructure is electrical work. So electricians are heavily involved in that process. And we developed an 18-hour course um, in collaboration with industry that we have since deployed across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, We have about 5,000 certified electricians in this program now. Um, The program, I think, is unique in the sense that that collaboration with industry was so key and continues to be. So we're all seeing and hearing a lot about the electric vehicle market expansion right now. Yes, It's very exciting to see. Uh, the automakers coming out with a, such a strong portfolio of vehicles. Um, at pretty much there's an EV for any kind of lifestyle that you have or want, any kind of vehicle that you're looking for. So with that will come a lot of charging infrastructure, but it needs to be done um, safely and, it, and consumers need to have confidence in that. Um, so the program really speaks to commercial, uh, residential fleet and public charging. So we kind of cover all of it. Our program even includes solar integration in that charging and energy storage. So we want to be sure that we're bringing electrical professionals into the conversation around EV so that the market can grow and flourish as it should be with consumer confidence. Because the fact of the matter is, Jennifer, the market will not grow and they cannot do what they want to do with these electric vehicles without people behind it supporting it. Exactly. So, you know, it's a little bit different. You know, we we're so used to the gas pump model, right? With our vehicles, sure, we know what that right. system looks like. We know where to find one. We know that if we, um, you know, put our credit card in, it's going to work just that way. Um, charging is just another new layer of technology in the, in the, the mobility space. Um, so as electrical professionals, my clients that are electrical contractors and electricians are, are a huge part of that. And they're a huge part of making sure that um, everything is done safely that everything um, is making sure that customer understands what's happening, that they understand what they really need in terms of power to add that technology into either their home or their business or their municipality. So I think it's just an interesting role that we play, but one that we're very committed um, to supporting the expansion of this market Um, and safety, safety, I can't say it enough. Um, That's what it's all about. Jennifer Meffer, director of the MTD Consulting Group. Congratulations on this honor and great work bringing all of this to the attention of the public and our WJR listeners. Thank you so much. It's a very exciting time. You are listening to Women Who Lead. The conversation continues in just a few minutes. And as we continue now on Women Who Lead, we welcome and congratulate Nancy Tellum, Boss Blue co-founder and longtime entertainment industry executive. Nancy is also one of our 2022 Women Who Lead honorees. Nancy, congratulations and welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's really an honor to, to receive this award. 
And Nancy, I don't think we've ever met, but I have been watching the work that you have been doing in the community for a long time now, and this is really impressive. Tell our listeners a little bit about Boss Blue. What is this? Well, you know, it's interesting. It has to kind of roll back a little bit. When I moved here from Los Angeles um, and I was an entertainment executive um, in Los Angeles, I moved here and I realized uh, I was introduced to a lot of different amazing women. Um, I was also introduced to a lot of young women who were returning back to Detroit or those who had just started their career and were looking for mentorship. So as I was listening, and of course, this was a moment for me to immerse myself into the community, I realized that there was a real need for women to first come together and meet each other because that wasn't happening. And also leverage these relationships to enable young women, uh, whether it's women, non-binary individuals, to really foster a connection, to to, uh, collaborate, create, and discover through this community. So it's like networking and mentoring. That's what you're thinking. Well, you know what's really pushing it is that I think that there are a lot of opportunities for men to come together and to support each other. I think um, what I realized here, and honestly, it's it's kind of unique. As I was kind of looking and trying to figure out what was really needed in the community, unlike New York and Los Angeles, where I think women have a lot of avenues to connect with one another we really didn't have this in the city. And as I said, there were a lot of amazing women who had accomplished so much. And those who were just trying to figure out either entering the workforce or those who had left the workforce and trying to figure out how to get back in that really did not have a community to come to. So that was kind of the inspiration for Boss Blue. It was a space where the diverse community of of Detroit and outside of Detroit could come together in a safe and welcoming space and that we would provide to to encourage this kind of interaction, programming and network and resources to support them. And Lou, I know you've got some questions for Nancy too. I I do. In in November, um, some friends and I actually had a party at Boss Blue. Oh, wow. And we did. And we were, um, none of us had been there. We're like, we just based upon the mission and the philosophy, we're like, we ha- we were throwing an all-women event. Like, we have to have it there. We have, and I'm telling you, it was a Thursday night. I think it was the first snow of the year. Um, and no one wanted to leave. <laughs> I mean, That's it, great. The environment, I, th- I think I walked out of there at 11.15, and um, and the environment was so welcoming. It, like, we were we were asking all of the staff, we're like, wait, t- talk to us about this. T- tell us what happens here. And, you know, just even the staff that were, um, there's a little, and there's a little co- beautiful coffee bar in there. And they said, well, who comes here? Like, who can use this coffee bar? And they said, well, students come here and um, the community comes here. Exactly. And and there's couches. I mean, just um, you walk in the front door and it is so welcoming. You wish that you lived there. I think <laughs> no one wanted to leave and go. Well, honestly, the design of the space and that that's what it, it's not only a celebration, it's a it was an old house that actually had not been used. It was a beautiful house on the outside. Um, it was a Queen Anne built in the 1880s and inside hadn't been used 
since the 1980s. And it was, I mean, we'll, we have before and after photos, which are shocking. But the whole focus was to make sure that it felt more like home than a business. And that in the design and the furniture and the offerings there, it was really kind of created to be your home away from home. So in the house itself, and, and you've seen it, we have a first floor that's actually open to the entire community. It's not limited to women. We really felt that this was something that we could serve the, the local community. And people come in, honestly, and have, we have this amazing menu of, you know, local resourced food. And um, uh, they come and have breakfast and lunch uh, in the afternoons. Uh, and thankfully, we actually have a liquor license. So we actually have happy hour. And, and every Thursday, every other Thursday, we have jazz uh, on the second wow. floor where you can come. So we're trying to create activities, these evergreen activities for people to come and just be comfortable there. And then overlaying this is obviously our programming that can range from fun things like book clubs and we have book tours and film screenings, but also really getting into um, the need for financial uh, financial literacy, uh, art collection, um, uh, career you know, direction, inspiration. So, I mean, the topics are incredibly uh, wide and diverse. And we also, on the lower level, have a health and wellness area where we have two Pelotons and we have classes, yoga, meditation, and those kind of things where as a working person and even as a non-working person, it's just balancing your professional with your personal. So we're really trying to address kind of all the needs and, and, Frankly, you know, downstairs, there's even a shower. So if you want to come and spend the day there, you can get yourself together to exercise, to, to have lunch with friends or have business lunches. And then, you know, have the evening where you have a happy hour. We do not serve um, uh, dinner. So as you said, we are, we're open to private events as well. So people are really taking advantage of it. Do you have to make a reservation to come there, Nancy? How does that work? No, you don't have to make a reservation at all. And membership, it is a nonprofit. So again, we have a mission to really, the idea is really to create pathways and open doors for women and non-binary individuals to really foster this connection. Um, so because it is a nonprofit, our membership fees are probably half or even less than half that you would see any other pri any private club. And, I, and this is not a club. I, I want to emphasize it's a space. And so for women under 35, it's almost like a gym membership. It's $600 a year that can be paid annually or quarterly. So it's $50 a month effectively. And for women over 35, which is the assumption that you know, we're a little bit more established when we're a little over 35 is $1,200 a year. But in addition to that, we also recognize there are certain people that are in, can contribute to the community that are trying to find new paths that are young entrepreneurs or old entrepreneurs and have that financial burden that they can't afford the membership. So we have a trailblazer in residence program where we um, are offering up to 100 scholarships per year for people for women who can't afford the membership and, okay. and again can that really offer and and are at a point in their lives that we really feel that not only can they contribute to the community but the community can really 
um, help leverage them. That is awesome. And this is located in a in a mansion in Midtown on Ferry Street. Right. And, you know, Nancy, one of the things that strikes me about this is, you know, right now during COVID, so many young professional women are home and right. they are not able to be mentored and in the office and working with superiors as much as they have in the past. This is a wonderful opportunity for them to still be able to do that and to get out there and talk to other people about how they're dealing with life right now, because it isn't easy. It isn't easy. And you know what? I got to say, the other aspect of it, which I think is incredibly important is that the world is pretty divisive right now. Yes. And in addition to the programming, we also want to create this environment where we can deal with tough issues and also have that safe feeling of of safety and uh, openness where people can really express themselves and exchange ideas that uh, there wouldn't be another environment which would enable such this of a conversation and exchange of ideas. But to your point, and this is what we were somewhat worried about, we wanted to also make sure it's a safe space. So we wanted to make sure every member has to show their vaccination and been boostered. Um, In this last Omicron kind of variant, we now insist that everyone wear masks as well because we really want people to feel comfortable that when they come, that we're doing all that we can to protect the other members. So, uh, you know, hopefully, and and the idea is that hopefully in February, we will get to near normal again. Uh, But in the meantime, that we're also very sensitive to that and making sure that people feel not only welcome, but safe in the space. And how can people learn more about this, Nancy? Tell them. Well, you can go online at bossblueus.com. Uh, we have an Instagram account. Uh, they've been, thankfully, there have been a lot of wonderful articles about Boss Blue that you can read. And honestly, they can just come by and we're happy to give a tour of the space and introduce them to the organization itself. So our, 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 lo- our, our I'll call it a log line because that's my television background, but uh, the, the log line is the door is open and it truly is for everyone to come in and we can you know, they can learn by going online, but they can learn by coming in and physically seeing the space, which I think is really, as you said, Lou, really worthwhile seeing. Yeah. What a great, great idea. Nancy Tellum, Boss Blue co-founder, longtime entertainment industry executive. Thank you so much for being here today. And thanks for doing this for our community. I, uh, I, I can't tell you how gratified I am by coming, you know, having this idea and seeing the enthusiastic response that we've had. And, you know, as as we all say, it's all, it's great. We've only been open for six weeks now, but uh, it's all about execution. And that's where our team, which is an extraordinary team, is absolutely focused and dedicated to make sure we execute on our mission. Well, thank you again for your time. It was nice to meet you. Our pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. You've been listening to Women Who Lead on behalf of my co-host, Luann Thomas Ewald. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend.